This is the podcast for Topic 10, where we'll be considering the concepts of vicarious liability and non-delegable duties. Now, in both categories, the law recognises that when a certain relationship exists between two parties, regardless of fault, the liability for the tortious act of one will be attributed to the other. So we call this, uh, I guess, a form of attributable liability. Now, although they are entirely two separate legal concepts in relation to vicarious liability and non-delegable duties, it was acknowledged by the High Court in Burnie Port Authority and General Jones that a breach of a non-delegable duty actually is vicarious liability. So the two are quite closely interconnected and related to each other because they are a form of attributable liability. I'm going to try and cover each of them in separate podcasts. So in this podcast, we're going to be talking about vicarious liability but we're going to acknowledge the overlap between the two concepts. Now, there are very good reasons, um, policy reasons for vicarious liabilities. And as always, we need to understand the common law principles of how we determine vicarious liability. And then we consider how the Civil Liability Act might have modified or changed this. So turning firstly to vicarious liability, this most often arises in employment contexts when there's an employer who is legally liable for the acts or omissions of their employees, and that's regardless of the employer's fault. There are certain parameters that surround this form of liability that I'll discuss in a moment, but for now it's important to understand that vicarious liability is a form of strict liability. What that means at law is that when an employee is negligent and they are legally liable, the employer will be legally liable as a joint tortfeasor. And that's regardless of the fault of the employer. And so for that reason, we say vicarious liability is attributable liability and is strict. The concept of strict liability also exists in the criminal law, where some criminal offences are considered proven without attributing the fault element. Consider occupational health and safety breaches also as an example. At common law, there's no duty to control others in order to prevent them creating harm to third parties. And historically, this has created problems because when an employee who is uninsured and often impecunious creates a dangerous situation whilst completing employment duties, the employer would escape liability. However, over time, the common law developed the legal principle of common employment, where those acts and omissions of employees would be attributed to the deeper pockets of the employer, and the employer would be found legally liable for the employees taught. Now, as your text notes, making employers liable for the negligence of their employees satisfies two policy objectives. Firstly, employers are better able to ensure or fund legal liability that's caused by their negligent employees. And secondly, by attributing liability to the employer, this will cause them to adopt safer work practices and to uphold occupational health and safety laws to safeguard against vicarious liability. Such rationale was clearly articulated in the case of London Drugs Limited and Kuhn International Limited, a 1992 judgment. So it's important to note that when a tort's committed in an employment context, there will always be the potential for two defendants, and that is the negligent employee as a tortfeasor and the employer as the vicariously liable joint tortfeasor. Now, having said that, it should be noted in New South Wales, South Australia and the Northern Territory, legislation has altered the common law position, making the employer alone legally liable. 
So unless the Employees Act is outside of the scope of their employment or criminal conduct in certain instances, then usually it will simply only be the employer's liability. Now, vicarious liability most commonly, as I said, arises in the employer-employee relationship, but it can also arise in the context of some principal and agent relationships and in the context of business partnerships between a business partner and their co-partner. What is required for vicarious liability to arise are three factors, and these are noted by Sapodine, um, your casebook. Firstly, that there is a tortious wrong that's been committed. Secondly, that there is a relationship of employer and employee, uh, or as I said, it could be principal and agent or uh, otherwise. And this is not always straightforward because sometimes the law has to deem what employment is. And thirdly, that the act or omission done by the employee is carried out in the course of their employment duties. Determining the first uh, step of a tort is easy enough in the test in these threefold tests because obviously we know when a negligent act has been committed. What is not so straightforward though is the second aspect. Was the wrong committed by an employee? Now, this seems fairly straightforward, but actually it's not. To determine whether or not a principal or employer is vicariously liable for an employee, we have to scrutinise the relationship between the parties first. This might seem straightforward, but in today's workforce, where contractors are a common feature of employment relationships, it's not straightforward at all. As a general principle, we say that if there is a contract of service, it is a relationship of employment for which the employer is vicariously liable. However, if it is a contract for services, it is a principal contractor relationship and for which there is no vicarious liability. The law of vicarious liability does not rest on whether a principal has tried to distance themselves from an employment relationship by calling it a contracting relationship. What the law does is to look to indicia or criteria in the particular relationship, and that's fact dependent, that determines whether or not it is a situation of employment as against a, a situation of independent contracting, and therefore whether vicarious liability applies. So what do I mean by this? Well, let's take a case. In Hollis and Vabu Proprietary Limited, Vabu ran a series of bicycle couriers who delivered documents and parcels in the Sydney CBD area and quite appropriately were called crisis couriers. Now, Hollis was run down and badly injured by one of the crisis career cyclists and sued Vabu, alleging it was their employee's negligence that caused the accident and that Vabu was vicariously liable for the negligence of its cyclist. The plaintiff sued them because obviously Vabu had insurance and my understanding is the plaintiff could not actually identify the particular courier who ran them down. Vabu maintained that all of its cyclist couriers were independent contractors and were not employees, and therefore they were not vicariously liable for the acts and omissions of the couriers. Now, this matter went to hearing and then to appeal to the Court of Appeal, and uh, it was held at both instances that the courier was an independent contractor for who Vabu was not legally liable. However, then the matter was appealed to the High Court of Australia. And the High Court took the opportunity to actually look beyond just the control test, which previously had been the main legal test in which vicariously li liability would be determined or employment would be determined. 
and it considered a number of uh, indicia or factor, factors that it considered pertinent in determining whether or not it was a relationship of employment. And these included, firstly, that the company Vibu had provided uniforms, radios and a checklist of equipment to its staff. The cyclists provided their bike and paid their own costs of running the bike. The company required the cyclists to report accidents and deducted money for insurance from their payment. The company didn't pay sick leave, holiday or superannuation. The couriers had little control over their work. They were given daily schedules of what they had to do and where they had to deliver to. It was unskilled labour. The courier could not choose to refuse work. And the courier had little if no bargaining power over what they were paid. Furthermore, the couriers wore the uniform of crisis couriers and presented to the public as an emanation of their employer. Based on these indicia of not only control, but the emanation test, the equipment test, the skilled labour test, the High Court determined that considering this variety of factors, the courier was in fact an employee of Vabu and not a contractor. Thus, Vabu was vicariously liable for the employee's acts and omissions in running down the plaintiff. So, step one is to determine if it's an employee-employer relationship or one of a principal and independent contractor. And this is because very vicarious liability attaches to employers, but principals, generally speaking, are not liable for the acts and omissions of their independent contractors, provided, of course, it's not a situation where there is a non-delegable duty and we'll cover that in the next podcast. It should be noted though that just because an employer has sought to set up an independent contracting situation doesn't mean the law is not going to look behind that uh, arrangement to determine whether it really is a situation of employment. And the reason um, that the law looks to not just the contractual formality is to determine uh, on the basis of what is just and fair what really is the true relationship between the parties. So what are the determinative elements of employment? One such determinative element is the amount of control the employer or principal has over the work of the uh, contractor slash employee. That is uh, where they work, uh, how often they work, how the work is performed, and how much supervision and instruction the uh, employee or contractor exerts over the manner in which they perform their work. So essentially what's being discerned is the degree of control that the principal or employer exercises over the contractor employee to determine whether there is an employment relationship. And this is known as the control test. The control test is best illustrated in the judgment of Stevens and Broadrib's store milling, Proprietary Limited, 1986 High Court judgment. In this matter, a sawmill owner owned, um, sorry, employed three groups of people to cut and transport timbers for the sawmill for production. The sawmill contracted each group to do its work and organise coordination between the three parties. But at no time did the sawmill um, exert control or supervision over how they performed their work or their specific duties. A truck driver was injured by the negligence of the loaders and the issue was whether the sawmill was vicariously liable for the loaders because they were under a contract of service as employees or whether the sawmill was not liable for the loaders because they had a contract for service and were independent contractors. You can see why the argument's important because if one of the contractors doesn't have insurance, it's really in the interest of the injured person to prove vicarious liability. Control's not the only matter that a court's going to consider as we discussed in Hollis and Babu. Um, and Justice Mason also noted this in Stevens and Broadrib. 
But the control test still today remains a very important factor in the number of features court, courts consider when they are looking at the employment relationship. So in that judgment, the court found that although the sawmill coordinated the logging and transport, it was an independent contractor relationship because on that control test, the sawmill did not establish, supervise or superintend the system of work, which ultimately was an unsafe system of work. The court found that the workers were outside of the sawmill's control and thus were independent contractors for which the sawmill was not vicariously liable. Now, the second test courts have used traditionally is looking at the degree of integration that the worker has um, in the principal or employer's business. And this is called the integration test. This test looks at indicia like uniforms, uh, who fixes the work hours, who provides the equipment or tools, and the degree of speciality of the worker, things like holiday pay, sick pay, etc. And you'll note that a lot of these um, criteria were what the High Court considered in Hollis. Uh, this was also exemplified in Mercy Docks and Coggins and Griffith, but also better illustrated also in Hollis and Vabu. The multifaceted test, uh, which comprises the integration test, was affirmed and subsequently applied in the judgment of Sweeney and Boylan nominees 2006, where the High Court again looked at the variety of factors, such as the invoicing, directions over work, who paid the workers' compensation insurance, etc. In Sweeney, the court noted that the indicia for determining an independent contractor or employee is unsettled. However, quote, there are some basic propositions that can be identified as central to this body of law. The court went on to identify the following factors. Uniform, equipment, such as vehicles, wages and workers' compensation, the ability of the worker to bargain or contract rates and superintendents of rates and payment, the degree of skill of the labour that's being provided, control over performing the job, and whether they're a public emanation of the company, together with policy reasons. One area of law where this becomes particularly fertile for litigation is well, what happens if the employee of a company or a business is borrowed as an employee by another business and company, and whilst they're being borrowed, causes harm to a third party. Who's vicariously liable for the employee? Is it the borrowing employer who has care and control of them at the time or is it the original employer that has vicarious liability? This issue frequently arises in the sphere of workers' compensation claims with labour hire companies and can be very heavily contested. In Mercy Docks and Coggins and Griffith, here the Harbour Board hired out an employee crane driver and the crane. And frequently what we see in these cases is that the hiring out of labour comes with specified equipment or tools. So the crane driver and the crane were hired out to a Steve Doring company. The crane driver was negligent and injured an employee of the Steve Doring company. And the Harbour Board argued that they were not the employer at the time because the Steve Doring Company determined the method of loading and unloading that caused the accident. In addition to this, the contract for hiring the crane driver purported to make the driver the employee of the Steve Doring Company for the duration of the hire. Now, this matter went to the House of Lords and the House of Lords looked behind that contractual relationship and determined that actually the crane driver was an employee and remained an employee of the Harbour Authority because on analysis of the integration test, the crane driver was supervised in his manner of work by the Harbour Authority. The crane driver was the servant of the hirer, pro hack vice, which means just for the occasion, 
but the vicarious liability, the court found, belonged to his original employer and not to the hirer. And a very different conclusion was reached in the case of McDonald and Commonwealth, a judgment that came two years earlier. And here, a driver and his vehicle were loaned by the employer to the Commonwealth. The employer did not supervise the employee for a period of nine months and only saw the employee occasionally during that period. Now, the employee negligently injured a fellow worker at the Commonwealth's airstrip where he was working, and the court found that prima facie vicarious liability will rest with the primary employer um, and that this is not shifted to the hiring employer unless uh, so great is the hiring employer's control that it actually becomes an apparent situation that there's been a shift in liability that has occurred. Now, in this instance, the Commonwealth, as the borrowing employer, was found vicariously liable because of the level of control and degree of instruction it was giving the borrowed employee. More recently, in Hallmark Constructions and Harford, a 2020 New South Wales Court of Appeal judgment, the court affirmed the test uh, of control that was used in Mercy Docks and Harbour. So it's important to note that in cases such as these, applying the control test may yield a very different outcome to applying the integration test. And it is for this reason that more recent judgments have affirmed that the better test for determining employee or contractor is in fact the multifaceted test, which looks at a number of the indicia in that employment relationship, not least of all control and integration. Once it's established that the relationship is one of employer and employee, this will not necessarily mean that the employer is always vicariously liable for any act and omission of the employee. Not everything that an employee does during their work hours will be considered to be within the scope of their employment. What happens, for example, if an employee takes the work vehicle for a joyride and injures somebody? The test, as set down by Sir John Salmond, is whether the employee has done an authorised or unauthorised act that is so connected with the acts that the employer has authorised that it may be regarded as a mode, albeit an improper mode, of performing their employment. In such instances, there will be vicarious liability. So, taking Salmond's test, there are two aspects. First, is the act authorised or unauthorised? Second, is the act sufficiently connected to employment? Now, in terms of authorisation, the law of agency often assists here. If the employee is acting as the employer's agent at the time, the employer will be vicariously liable for the employee. This means that even if the wrongful act is incidental to the acts that are part of employment, and yes, that can include acts that are criminal acts. In the judgment of Baisley and Curry, a 1999 Canadian Supreme Court decision that informed a lot of the law concerning sexual assault of minors in institutions in Australia, there was a situation where a carer in a residential care uh, facility for troubled teenagers abused some of the children in care. The court looked very carefully at the duties which um, were required by or of the employee, and those duties included bathing and tucking the children into bed. Because of this, they were considered closely connected and giving an opportunity to commit the crime, and therefore they were considered to be uh, sufficiently attached to the employment functions. So whilst it was a very wrong mode of performing the employment duties, it was sufficiently connected and the employer was found vicariously liable. 
The court found the important aspect is whether the Act falls within the ambit of the risk that the employer's duties or enterprise creates. There has to be a nexus between the wrong and the employment duties in order to impose vicarious liability on the employer. Even acts that are prohibited by an employer may still be found to be the responsibility of the employer through vicarious liability. And this is because the Act has that sufficient connection to the employment activities. Your case on point is Smith and Lloyd Grace, which is the situation where a solicitor's clerk fraudulently took money from one of its uh, law firm clients and the law firm was still found to be um, vicariously liable because the defrauding of the client was so intimately connected with the employment duties of the law clerk. Scope of employment is, as the High Court noted, a conceptually limiting concept and it can be temporal, geographic and functional. What happens, for example, if the employee engages in illegal activities or is acting at well outside their employment duties um, when the negligence occurs? It's here that the court then is required to consider whether that act or omissions undertaken in the scope of their employment. If it occurs within this course of employment duties, even if they're performing those duties incorrectly, without authorisation or even illegally, then yes, the employer will be vicariously liable. What is required is that the negligent act has sufficiently close contact through or connection with employment duties. Sometimes though, this is a really vexed issue and it can be really difficult to discern. The best way to understand scope of employment is through analysis of a number of judgments. In Commonwealth and Connell, 1986, uh, the court had to consider whether a naval apprentice who was seriously injured by another apprentice while they were skylarking during a training exercise was acting in the scope and course of employment. Now, both the plaintiff and the other apprentice were employed by the Navy and were undergoing a training drill at the time. The other apprentice pushed the plaintiff off a bridge and very sadly, he became a paraplegic as a consequence of the fall. The question was whether the Navy was vicariously liable for the skylarking acts of the apprentice that caused the injury. Uh, the employer argued that the trespass to the person, namely the pushing the plaintiff, was beyond the scope of the course of employment. The court found that the conduct of a member of the armed services is within the scope of his duty or authority if it's authorised expressly or impliedly or is incidental to what they are authorised to do, even though it may be performed in an unauthorised way. If, however, it is not expressly or impliedly authorised or is not so connected with the conduct required in employment, then it will be an independent unauthorised act. As was the, also the case of Deaton's and Flu, this was an interesting case because here a barmaid became upset with the very poor language and abusive behaviour of a patron. The patron requested, uh, there was some contention as to whether or not there had been the abusive language, but that was certainly the evidence of the barmaid and the patron had requested to speak with the licensee of the premises. The barmaid responded by actually throwing a glass of beer at the patron and it actually blinded him in one eye. Uh, the, in relation to the battery that the barmaid committed, the question was whether or not the hotel was vicariously liable for this act. The court held that the act was spontaneous and was an act that was clearly outside of the authorised mode of the employee performing her duties. It was not even an unauthorised manner of employ conducting her employment. And in this instance, the employer was not vicariously liable for the battery. 
Contrast this decision to Ryan and Ann Street Holdings Proprietary Limited in 2006, where a security guard injured the plaintiff, who was a patron to some premises, and the security guard had used excessive force and assaulted the plaintiff whilst removing them from the licensed premises. The court found that even though the assault was not authorised by the employer and certainly wasn't an authorised mode of performing employment duties, the Act was closely connected with the scope of the employment duties, namely ejecting patrons, and that even using excessive force was still enough to make the employer vicariously liable. Well, what's the position if an employee decides to go off on a frolic of their own during work hours? Now, whilst employers can be liable for wrongful acts committed during the course of their employment, even those expressly prohibited by the employer, see Rose and Plenty, um, they're generally not liable for where an employee goes off on what's called a frolic of their own. So such as um, where an employee has gone to an alternate location or premises and perpetrated a tort, or where the employee has uh, caused a prank or something entirely outside of employment conditions. Um, an example of this was a situation where there was a prank with one employee striking another employee, causing them to suffer severe injury in Blake and J.R. Perry nominees. And uh, in that case, though, it was in interesting because it was found to be not incidental at all to the employment and therefore not part of the employment for which the employer was not vicariously liable. Now, we've mentioned before, what about criminal acts? Well, just because it's a criminal act by the employee doesn't mean that the employer is not vicariously liable. The position at law is that if the employer, sorry, employee's actions are sufficiently connected to the risks of the employer's enterprise, then it's going to be considered within the scope of employment. Now, we've spoken uh, just a moment ago about sexual abuse of children by teaching staff or others in whilst they're in the care of schools. And this is exactly the issue that was considered by the High Court in a series of cases in 2003, although it should be noted that those cases left the law very unsettled until it was later clarified again by the High Court. But the cases were New South Wales and Lepore, Salmon and Queensland and Rich and Queensland. Now, in those cases, the High Court was required to consider instances of sexual abuse by teachers of pupils that occurred on school premises. And the court was required to consider if um, these acts, which were clearly criminal acts that were not part of a teacher's duty, was something that the schools should be vicariously liable for. And again, it became a question of whether the illegal acts were closely connected to the employment duties. In the three cases, it was accepted that firstly, the schools owed non-delegable duties of care to the children in their care. And again, we'll talk about that in just a moment in the next podcast. But secondly, in all three cases, it was agreed that the employer had not been negligent in and of their own right in terms of their duty to the children. The only issue was whether the states, being the departments of education, were liable for the criminal acts of the uh, teachers in the child abuse because of the non-delegable nature of the duty owed. Although not argued, the court did not consider vicarious liability fully in these judgments, which is why it later came back to the High Court. The court noted uh, the two judgments of Deaton's and Flew, where the employer was not liable, and Lloyd and Grace Smith, where the employer was liable in relation to criminal acts. Um, in determining each of those cases um, and the context of teachers abusing children, each case essentially turns on its facts. The degree of personal care and the specific duties that were required of the teacher were particularly relevant in determining whether or not the school would be vicariously liable for the acts and omissions. 
If a teacher, for example, just teaches and then sexually abuses a child, then they've clearly acted in a way that's completely unconnected with the duties and responsibilities incidental to their employment. However, a teacher who is uh, required to do boarding house master duties or is responsible for personal care of children or is sent to a camp context where they have personal care of children, supervision of showering, etc., anything that might give uh, opportunity or would warrant sexual misconduct on an authorised base, unauthorised basis means that the school is most likely going to be found vicariously liable. So too, if you have situations that aren't sexual abuse, but where there's overzealous discipline of a child in terms of corporal punishment. And as I mentioned before, the decision of Baisley and Curry very much informed um, the High Court's determination in relation to these matters. But ultimately, um, certainly uh, the case of Lepore was then remitted back to the trial judge in order to determine in relation to the particular facts of those cases. So in Salmon and Rich, the cases of sexual assault by the classroom teacher, the court found that to prove vicarious, vicarious liability, it would be necessary to show the teacher's duties placed him in a position of power and intimacy with female students and that the sexual conduct could be determined closely connected to the employment responsibilities. The High Court had another opportunity to revisit this issue of vicarious liability and it did so in Prince Alfred College uh, Incorporated and ADC. And this judgment really is the one that clarifies the position with respect to illegal acts and such as sexual abuse and assault by institutions. Um, in that case, the court considered sexual abuse of a minor in a boarding school context by the boarding house master. Uh, he had sexually abused a 12-year-old male boarder that was in the school's care. The plaintiff alleged that the school was liable because firstly, it owed a non-delegable duty of care to him and secondly, it was vicariously liable for the actions of the boarding house master. Now, on the vicarious liability point, the High Court noted that the law in this area was quite unclear and required some kind of clarity and uniting principle. The High Court affirmed Lord Diplock's view that the employment has to be more than just creating an opportunity for wrongful conduct by the employee i.e. it has to be more than just simply allowing the boarding house master to simply work with the children. There had to be opportunity and connection to the employment. In determining the matter, the High Court affirmed that the relevant test to be determined is as follows, and I'm quoting from the judgment. Consequently, in cases of this kind, the relevant approach is to consider any special role that the employer has assigned to the employee and the position in which the employee is thereby placed via v the victim. In determining whether the apparent performance of such a role may be said to give the occasion for the wrongful act, particular features may be taken into account. They include authority, power, trust, control, and the ability to achieve intimacy with the victim. The latter feature may be especially important. Where, in such circumstances, the employee takes advantage of his or her position with respect to the victim, that may be sufficient to determine that the wrongful act should be regarded as committed in the course or scope of employment and, as such, render the employer vicariously liable. So, as you can see, it's actually a very high standard um, and vicarious liability nearly always will be found, uh, particularly where there is power, trust, control and opportunity given in the course of employment. Obviously, each case turns on its facts as to what the context is, but it certainly is a very high duty in terms of vicarious liability. 
On the background of case law and the opportunity test, we need to also note the wording of Section 68. Uh, sorry, 6H of the Civil Liability Act, uh, which has also modified this area of law subsequent to the Royal Commission um, into the institutional abuse of children. And that uh, legislation states that an organisation is vicariously liable for child abuse perpetrated against a child by an employee of the organisation if, and interestingly here, subsection A and subsection B of 6H1 uh, actually implements the test that we see in um, ADC and Prince Alfred College, and that is if the apparent performance by the employee of a role in which the organisation placed the employee supplies the occasion fit for the perpetration of the child abuse and the employee takes advantage of that occasion. So that occasion test or the opportunity is now part of the legislation. Do have a look at the wording of section 6-8, sorry, 6-H in this regard, because that will be helpful to understand what the legal test now is. And so, in summary, when we're considering this uh, type of relationship where the law attributes liability in vicarious liability, first, we have to establish that there is a tort. Secondly, we have to establish that there is that relationship of employer versus employee as against employer and independent contractor, again, feeding into that whether or not it's a non-delegable duty, but that is very important. And then thirdly, we have to determine whether or not if they are an employee, the act or omission has been done in the course of their employment duties. So think about framing your notes around those three factual uh, matters or those three legal tests that are very important to shaping whether or not vicarious liability will be found.